morning, Life Church, and good morning to all of you who are joining us online this morning. We're in part two of this series that I'm calling Divided We Fall. And it's a series that's designed to make us all a little bit uncomfortable and hopefully make us a little bit better. Because after all, the church should be the safest place to talk about anything, right? Don't roll your eyes at me. Now, the tension for all of us who are Jesus followers is this. Are we willing to put our faith ahead of our politics? Are we willing to be Christ followers first and Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or whatever else you might be second? Are we willing? What I'm suggesting is that we take what Jesus said seriously, that we not allow the political climate to divide the church. Because if you'll remember, one big thing that Jesus prayed before he went to go be crucified was that his movement would be unified, that it would be one, that it would not be divided. And today, amongst other things, that means that we would figure out a way to disagree politically and yet love one another unconditionally. Now, the interesting thing to me is this. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants Jesus on their side. Both parties are convinced that Jesus would be in their camp if he were walking the earth today. Republicans would be convinced that Jesus would be on their side because of their values. Democrats might say Jesus would definitely be a Democrat because of his concern for people. And so everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Both sides quote the Bible. And we love that out of everybody, Jesus always agrees with us, right? Well, at least me. <laughs> the truth is, when Jesus came, he did not come to take sides. He came to take over. Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God, which is the upside down kingdom, where those with wealth and power leverage that wealth and power for those that have less. The kingdom of God is where the king laid his life down for his subjects rather than demanding that the subjects do that for him. The kingdom of God was so broad and so inclusive that he said, everyone, everyone is invited to participate in it. But the kingdom of God will, at some level, always conflict with the kingdoms of men. And that is why it is absolutely foolish for the church to be, ever be divided over a candidate or over a political party. Because in the final analysis, no political party will ever perfectly line up with the values of Jesus, although each party has a little bit of it. And some that's even difficult for you to admit. But again, it's foolish for us to, as followers of the eternal king, to be divided by lesser kings. Now, the Apostle Paul, whom we talk about all the time, Paul steps onto the pages of history as somebody who hates Christians. He's a Pharisee. He was brilliant. He was uber-educated. And then he becomes a Jesus follower. And in two of his letters, Paul gives us a phrase that provides a great starting point for understanding our primary call. Now, you, you may have never even noticed this little phrase before because he only uses it twice in his letters. And the phrase is this, the law of Christ. Say that with me, the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ was his shorthand for Jesus's new covenant command. When Jesus gathered his disciples together for the Last Supper, he said, guys, I'm gonna give you a new command that's gonna replace all the other commands. You had 613 of them, you had the Torah, but I'm giving you a new command because I'm establishing a brand new covenant. And as you probably know, the command was very simple. 
It is love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, by this brand new, unique kind of covenant love, everyone will know you're my disciple if you love one another. But not just loving one another any old way that you please. No, I want you to take your cues from me, Jesus says. So Paul takes that idea and he pushes it through all of his letters as the uniting ethic for all of the Jesus followers. And this phrase, the law of Christ, is how he takes his readers back to that big idea. It's the marching orders for anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus. Now, just a couple of examples I'll give you, because he writes this in the letter to the Christians that are living up in the city of Corinth. In chapter nine, he says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. That's real strong language, especially in a day and age where there were, there were slaves everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing slaves. He says, I've made it myself. I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible, Paul says. It's like he's saying, look, I'm on a mission. I don't have much time left and I did a lot of damage to the church. So I'm trying to make up for lost time and I'm willing to do anything short of sin to bring the good news to everyone. And he continues, he says, for those not having the law, meaning the law of Moses, for those not having the law, I became like one of those not having the law. In other words, he's saying, I became like a Gentile in order to reach out to the Gentiles, even though I'm Jewish. But then he gives us our phrase. He says, but I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm still under God's authority. I'm just not under the Torah. I'm not under the old covenant anymore. And then he tells us what law he is under. He says, I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So what is the law of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. In his letter to the Christians living in the province of Galatia, he says it with a little bit more description on how to go about actually doing this. He says it with these words, carry each other's burdens, carry each other's burdens. So when you see someone who is burdened down, whether it be financially or someone who's burdened with kids, someone who's burdened with work, someone who's burdened with a physical affliction of some kind, maybe someone who's just gotten tripped up in life, we are to carry one another's burdens. And look at this, he goes on by saying, if you'll do that, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. So when the, concern, when the concerns of others concern you and you act upon it, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. As Jesus followers, regardless of your political persuasion, the law of Christ is your marching orders. The law of Christ should inform our conscience over time as we grow as Christians our conscience should become hardwired to the law of Christ, loving one another. So when we do something that's contrary to loving as Christ loved us, well, it should bother us. It should ding our conscience, but not just our own conscience personally, it should also ding our collective conscience. We should all, as a people, we should all be burdened or convicted by many of the same things. Things like mistreatment, cruelty, disrespect, injustice, hatred, manipulation, lying, intimidation, 
self-destructiveness. Those things should rub us the wrong way and warning lights should go off on our mental dashboard. Whenever we see the violation of this law of Christ, it should bother us personally and collectively. Why? Because it's the opposite of what Jesus said needed to be central to life, the value and the dignity of every single individual. I mean, you do realize it wasn't always this way, right? Or have we forgotten that? You know, for thousands of years, it was seen as completely normal that some people should be owned by other people. That the whole idea of slavery wasn't even questioned, wasn't even a moral issue. It was just the way things were. Matter of fact, the much respected and oft quoted philosopher Aristotle, he wrote what he thought life should be like. Listen to his words. That some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, it's expedient. He was talking here about slavery. He's saying not only is slavery necessary, it's expedient. There's no way our world would work without some people dominating and owning other people. He went on, this is what, these are his words. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. That's Aristotle, the philosopher. See, back then there was no moral conflict involving slavery, but four centuries after Christianity had taken hold, Augustine, who was a Christian bishop at the time, he said, no, no, slavery is the result of sin. It's the result of sin. And suddenly this brand new idea is born from this brilliant mind in a world where slavery was just a permanent part of the landscape. Suddenly begins this growing revolution of thought that slavery is not a part of nature. Slavery is the result of sin. And it was so against the grain of that time that it took centuries and centuries to reverse the trend of slavery. All right, let me give you another example. For the longest time, nobody even questioned infanticide. In the Roman world, they just called it exposure, exposure. They said that infanticide was good for society. In other words, it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And there were social laws in parts of the Roman Empire where you were allowed to just let your baby die. Maybe it was because a girl and you didn't want a girl. You could just expose your child is how they referred to it. That meant you take your, your baby outside your village to the outside the walls of your village or maybe to the edge of the forest or down by the edge of the river. And then you just go home. And legally, you are not culpable for killing your child because they looked at it as the, the fates or the wild animals would determine the life of your child. There were really no rules other than you couldn't directly murder your own child. This is just the way things were at that time. But Christians from the very, very beginning condemned exposure. And they would often go out to the edge of the forest or the edge of the river where these babies were often left. And they'd bring these little children, these babies into their tiny homes with a little bit of food and resources that they had, they would raise these abandoned babies and children for themselves. I mean, they would raise them up. Why did they do that? The old covenant didn't speak to this issue. So scripture didn't require it. So why did they do it? Because they knew the law of love and the law of love required it. They understood what it meant to be made in the image of God and they understood, they understood the law of Christ love others as we have been loved. They thought like this, you know, we're all kind of like little children that have been adopted into the family of God. And they knew in Romans 5.8, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. 
And then as Christianity began to make inroads into the Roman Empire, the empire's conscience began to be affected by the teachings of Jesus. And in the year 318, after embracing Christianity, the Emperor Constantine declares infanticide a crime. Why the change? Because it became, over the course of time, a conscience issue. Because of the teaching of Jesus, and because of the unity of the church around the law of love, the law of Christ. So, when the law of Christ informs an individual, or a city, or a nation's conscience, things begin to change. Jesus' single new covenant command was so transcultural, so transgenerational, it was so powerful that it'll never expire, it never goes out of date, it never becomes irrelevant. We're to do for others what God through Christ has done for us. That kind of ethic is to shape our own conscience and then have impact upon our world. This, friends, is why the church is so important. Because part of our responsibility is to be salt and light in this world. And being salt and light means that we are to help shape the conscience of a nation. It's also why we cannot be divided, especially over political issues or political candidates. We're just not, because candidates come and go, political platforms come and go. These issues come and go. Jesus prayed that we would be one in spite of our differences, which includes our political differences. Now, the law of Christ informs our conscience, and to that informed conscience, we're, we're to incorporate knowledge and wisdom. And let me explain why this is so important. One of the great things about the human race is that we are able to collect information and then pass it on to the next generation. Dogs don't do this. Cats especially don't do this. But humanity, because of writing, has allowed one generation to gift the next generation what they have learned, who in turn gifts the next generation with what they have learned. Consequently, every generation is more informed than the previous generation. And with this knowledge, this information, comes the potential for wisdom. It's not automatic, but it carries with it the potential for wisdom. And so, as people of the 21st century, we should add to our informed conscience the knowledge of science, the knowledge of psychology, the wisdom that comes with understanding how the world works, and God causes all of this to work together. And keep this in mind, just for perspective's sake. If somebody asks you where babies come from, your answer to that question is determined by the age of the person asking, isn't it? Of course, if a four-year-old were to ask you, you give them an answer that accommodates to their capacity. If an 18-year-old asks you, then you'd say, well, you should really know that by now. So we accommodate to the capacity of the person asking. So somewhere between four and 18 is the appropriate time to have that conversation. Parents, that was free. I hope that was a great blessing to you. <laughs> Your heavenly father and my heavenly father accommodates to the capacity of his people. So when we look like at Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the story of origins, we see God accommodating to the capacity of an ancient pre-science, pre-science, pre-Tylenol, never took a hot shower group of people. And then when Jesus comes much later, he explains God in a different way than the Old Testament did. Why? Well, because time has changed. People's capacity has changed. 
And in every generation, knowledge increases and God continues to help us understand how he made the world and how it all works. So as Christians, we should be on the forefront, never resisting science or discovery in any way. All truth is God's truth. We should be the most curious people because our faith is tethered to an historical reality, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're led by God's word and God's spirit, which guides us. So we don't ever need to fear science. No, no, no. Our informed consciences should be buttressed by the wisdom that comes with age that's been handed to us by people who went before us. So all of that helps shape our minds, our beings, our consciences, and helps us land on what we believe and what policies and legislation will support as individuals. Now, the law of Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, is non-negotiable. And over time, as we learn more and we follow Jesus longer, our conscience will be shaped according to the law of Christ. Knowledge and wisdom simply complement that. This is why, friends, this is why if your child falls off their bike and breaks their arm, you don't call me, you go to the ER. Because once, a time, uh, once upon a time and place, they called the witch doctor or the village priest or whatever. But now you don't call them, you go to the hospital. Not because you don't believe in the healing power of God, we do. But as Christians, we don't see any conflict between those things, between faith and medicine or faith and science. No conflict. Now, I'll pray for your child if you ask. Any believing friend can and will. But our instinct now is that we fix the broken arm and put a cast on it. Why? Because of how intuitively we incorporate knowledge into our actions. But, but when it comes to this, there will always be disagreement among Christians. And this is where I hope you'll be open a little bit here. The reasons we'll always need patience and love is this. It's called the Miles Law. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's this. The Miles Law says, where you stand depends upon where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. Miles Law was uh, named after Rufus Miles, who was part of three different presidential administrations. And here's what this saying means. Where you take a stand depends upon your own cultural context, where you live, who you're related to, your level of resource, what you have experienced. All of this determines your perspective in life. One guy says, I put my faith first, that's why I'm a Democrat. Another guy says, I put my faith first, that's why I'm a Republican. See, your political views were not shaped in a vacuum. And I'm just pausing long enough to acknowledge that is part of what it means to be mature. And oh boy, do we need some maturity in our political discussions, don't we? Now, I'm not suggesting that we all just come to the middle and have a kumbaya moment and we all have to agree on everything. No, there's always going to be disagreement when it comes to policy or platform or legislation. That's okay, as long as we're mature enough to not let it divide us. Our views and our values are shaped by a variety of things, much of which we had little control over. But we can all learn something. And we may not change what we believe, but we can gain some understanding as to why other people think and believe the way that they do. Now, here's just a few things that impact how we think politically, where we live, 
how we were raised, where we were educated, if we were educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced is, what we've seen other people experience. These are just a few factors that shape our political viewpoint. Now, just think about your parents for a moment. You know, why do you think your dad was a Republican? Or why do you think your mom was committed to be a Democrat? If you looked at it, you'd probably find some reasoning related to the world that they grew up in. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. And that doesn't diminish the significance of our faith, not at all. It's just that all of these things are real factors, whether we're ready to admit it or not. Now, where you stand depends upon where you sit. Recognizing this allows us to open our hands and open our hearts without necessarily changing what we think about politically. But allowing the law of love, the law of Christ, to guide us. Okay. Real, real quick, three quick things before we leave off for this week. First thing is begin to listen and listen specifically to people who don't have experience in the world the way that you do. It's a little bit different because out there, whether we realize it or not, out there are the haves and the have nots, the Christians and the not Christians, the young and the old, the black and the white, married and single, new citizens and old citizens, people who have been in the military and people who oppose the military, all out there. Begin to listen to people who've experienced the world differently than you have. And then second, once you start listening, learn something. Learn something, like for real. Not, well, I listened to that idiot for 10 minutes, that's all I'm supposed to do. No, it's not what I'm talking about. Learn. We don't have to be afraid of new information. Also, I love this line by someone I could not be more diametrically, ideologically opposed to. He said this, pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. <laughs> it's a great saying. He's saying, try to understand how much you don't know, really. So don't just refuse to read that book or shut that off really quickly just because it disagrees with your worldview. Be a student, not just a critic. Because being a critic is quite popular these days, isn't it? It's cheap, it's easy, and often it's anonymous. <laughs> Some of us need to, what's the theological term? Oh yeah, shutting up and listening for one minute. One minute. Get this, if we don't listen and learn, we will discount anything that doesn't fit perfectly into our imperfect worldview. <laughs> I'll say that again. If we don't listen and learn, then we will discount anything that doesn't fit perfectly within our imperfect worldview. And we'll just quit learning. And when you quit learning, something bad happens on the inside. We got to be better than that. Let me put it this way. If you're a Republican, your Democrat brothers and sisters aren't crazy. If you're a Democrat, your Republican brothers and sisters are not crazy. They just sit in a different place, so they see the world in a different way. And when we catch ourselves saying, I just don't think, I, don't, I have no idea how anybody could ever, could ever, ever think that way. You've just confessed something about you, not them. <laughs> it just means that there's something that you don't understand. So why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Especially in the body of Christ. Why wouldn't we take time to understand? <laughs> Listen. Everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them. <laughs> May not to you, but it does to them. Okay, third and last thing. 
First is listen, then learn, and now love. Third thing is love. Please, never, ever, ever burn a relational bridge over a political issue. Don't. Don't do it. This goes back to the epicenter of what we believe as Christians. How dare I burn a relational bridge with someone for whom Christ died? So come on, let's listen and learn and love, okay? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Empires rise and empires fall. Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my church, and nothing is ever going to stop it. And he did. And we've been invited to be a part of it. And our responsibility, especially in a season like this, is to show our divided nation what it looks like to disagree politically and yet love unconditionally and to pray for unity. Can we do that? With God's help, I believe we can. Why don't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this call to the law of love, the law of Christ, that we can love others the way that you have loved us. So God, would you move in our hearts and in our minds to enable us to do this better, especially in this, this hotly contested season where things are so sensitive. God, would you help us to just have love as the highest, highest value in our life right now? Help us to seek out those that may be different than us and to love them unconditionally and move upon our hearts, Lord, continually to pray for unity. We know that you can do this. And now we believe that you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I've got some good news for you, Life Church. Life Church is returning to public services on Sunday, December 6th, back at East End Market. We'll be there at Sunday. It's on Sunday at 10 a.m. That's when we'll begin meeting together again. That is not as far off as you think. It's going to be here before you know it. Now listen, right around the corner, we're gonna have a Life Church worship and community night, fellowship and some food and some live worship um, on October 28th. It's a Wednesday evening at the home of Noah and Tracy Telesnik in uh, Maitland. We've met there before. Uh, but we'll be posting things online, sending out emails, so you'll be up on this. So spread the word. October 28th, that night, we worship together and commune together, it'll be great. And then we come back together, December 6th, okay? Looking forward to being with you. All right, until we meet again, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.